Welcome to the Business Excellence for Managers podcast, which is dedicated for all of you leaders and executives who would like to continuously improve your business performance. This podcast is sponsored by Wave Business Excellence Footprint, the digital training company that cares about your development, your employees' development, and your business performance. You can find the courses at www.wave-bef.com. Today's episode is all about design thinking and innovation. Today's guest is Dean Myers from New York, who is a design thinking and innovation trainer, coach, and consultant. He has been teaching people how to apply visual thinking and design thinking in technology since the Macintosh arrived on desktops with the first graphical user's interface. He has employed techniques including graphical facilitation and Lego series play to help entrepreneurs, startups, managers and C-level decision makers do better work, build stronger teams and become more than design thinkers. They are design doers. Dean is one of the authors of the World of Visual Facilitation and he is a former faculty member of the American Management Association. Today he is applying all of his experience and skills at the US Bank as the Innovation Facilitator. I am excited to introduce you to this amazing guest, Dean. Hello Dean and welcome to the Business Excellence for Managers podcast. Thank you, I'm very delighted to be here with you. It's great to have you here. Thanks for the time. And one of my first questions, which I always love asking all of my guests is, could you tell us your story and your journey? How did you get to where you are today? Well, I guess I would start by saying that in my youth, I was interested more in arts than anything else. Um, I wanted to get into the arts and become a performing artist, which I, I did pursue. And I thought it was a sideways path that I would wind up uh, landing in technology. So that's always a way to kind of preface it because I think it really is important to understand that as I consider myself a design thinking person and a design thinking perhaps subject matter expert, it is because I came out of this very human-centric approach to what I wanted to do as a, as a career. And therefore, I have always been interested in what makes people tick And as I wound up working more and more in technology, I wound up moving into a combination of marketing, advertising, and then that led me even deeper into, we'll call it other areas of technology that don't seem so customer-centric or customer-facing. I said my big bump into the business world was back in the early 80s. Uh, I was the first sales and technical representative for Apple Computer for the Caribbean region. I lived in Puerto Rico at that oh. point, and I was there when the this brand new device, the Macintosh, was released. Wow. <laughs> right? So <laughs> this is the first computer. So I'm bringing you back in time. This is the first computer that had the first graphical user interface, the GUI, as we called it. Amazing. And we had uh, this new device called the mouse, right? We yeah. were looking at screens in a very different way. We were now employing visual metaphors to represent both tasks, functions, and feelings or thoughts. You know, we were shifting into a very visually driven environment, uh, working environment. So I'd say that I was, you know, the luckiest person in the world. I was able to shift all of my background in arts, graphic arts, uh, performance, uh, sound, music, uh, and shift into, into technology and somehow look like I belong there. So... <laughs> 
And on top of it, you're traveling in all these lovely yeah, locations. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. I was not born and raised in Puerto Rico. I, I relocated there. I did basically now worked in multiple languages because I was in the Caribbean, which included Spanish, French, English, some other languages that I don't speak. So as I say, being very exposed to people at a core level, I think really opened my horizons and prepared me for all of the innovative, disruptive things that I plowed into more and more over time. So. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. And especially what, what you do and what I used to do in the past, it's all people business. So if you understand how people function, how they think, what motivates them, and if you know already different cultures, different languages, it really helps you as a lever. Yeah? And that's why when I see also from the people working in the previous jobs where I was, those who were exposed to more cultures and to more different languages, they had somehow the ability, it was almost like a little superpower that they had yeah. to be able to connect much better with other people. I would agree agree with you. A hundred percent. Just in the educational process, to be exposed to more things that are outside the silos, number yeah. one. And the other thing, too, is to be exposed to those things when you're young in the sense that it's okay to not have it down, you know, yeah. to be able to experiment and feel safe about figuring things out, but to have the safety to expand without worrying about if you're going to fail or not. When you go and move somewhere else, you're definitely going to fail because you haven't lived there before. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of this carryover in design thinking and innovation, that curiosity and also the willingness to say, okay, I don't have it right, but I'll, I'll try again something else. Yeah. I think that exactly. is really important. Yeah. And I think that's also probably the shift of mindset that people should have when they are in that world of design thinking. To have that curiosity to know that when I fail, I want to use it more as, as a way to know how am I going to overcome that? What's going to be my continuous improvement? What are going to be the lessons learned out of that right. failure? So they should not see it as a fearful thing. They should see it as something like a curiosity to think, well, what could fail in my approach that we're going to do? And if something does not go well, then we are going to start to be creative and to overcome those downfalls so that we can come out then much more successful uh, as, as we wanted to. Right. So therefore, my next question will be for some of those listeners who maybe have not heard about it yet, what is design thinking and why do many people link this topic with innovation? My understanding of what design thinking as a formulaic approach started from just basically researching design in the one hand, which is I think they're saying that that started 30, which now close to 40 years ago. And then they started to move more into this idea that design for design's sake alone is not enough that we started to need to understand who our customers, our clients, who are we serving by what we make and what we do. And so you start to branch into things which were we call them now service design and so on and so forth. But it also snuck into, we'll call it the whole lean process, mm -hmm. right? Which was the idea of, again, having that open curiosity to understand what was working and what wasn't working not waiting till the end of the line, right? But really going all the way back to the very beginning and starting to understand, well, what are the problems that we are solving for? So you see, I'm starting to show you how it started to become a process rather yeah. than just a, a loose mode of inquiry. 
And then it was formalized. It was more formalized with Stanford. There's a combination. There's a group in Germany that was doing this kind of formalized approach to quote-unquote design. Stanford, the Stanford D School and IDEO, the company IDEO, they're kind of the hallmarks of where really is noticed that they started to say, let's create a process to understand how to approach designing things and products and services. That's from the 80s, and it really blew up, I think, around the early 2000s is when it really started to get noticed and taken on. And of course, degrees were starting to be offered. (laughs) So when it was formalized, you know, yeah. yeah. That's interesting because I remember back then, probably around the year 2000, when I, also the first time I heard about it, that was when I was in Germany. It came in a big, big wave and everybody was speaking about it. Every consulting company right. was promoting design thinking. And, and then they started doing some kind of uh, events for companies to do innovation events. And they always had somebody who was a trainer from design thinking. And that's so interesting because many people think that that was the beginning of design thinking. But as you said, it really started way, way before that it was probably like two decades before yeah Yeah, with the research with the design research idea it's funny when you look at there were television shows for instance um there was one about advertising and um i can't think of the name of it right now very popular television show about advertising and the shift in advertising the idea of starting to do advertising starting to do research i can even tell you for instance procter and gamble in the 1930s invented new things with what we would now call a design thinking process. They wow. they had these women who would go out. They were brilliant. They were taken out of secretarial schools and they had amazing memories. And they were sent into the homes of women and so on and so forth. And they would sit and have coffee and whatnot and say, tell me uh, what's your day like and what's interesting things to you and what troubles are you having here at home? And the invention of the Betty Crocker cake mix came about by researching and discovering that women didn't feel like they really were baking because the pre-made mixes, all you had to do was add water. And and then they wow. discovered that simply by adding an egg <laughs> and mixing up with the egg <laughs> made these women feel like they were now a legitimate baker at home. Yeah. <laughs> right? And this is the 1930s. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So again, I've you know I've worked with a lot of companies and heard these stories and say, okay, so you were doing design thinking back in the day, you know. So that's so nice to hear those uh, examples, especially when one looks at certain topics and looking back in history and to see that evolution is so interesting. And if I'm a manager in a company and I'm thinking about applying design thinking at some point of time. What kind of problems should design thinking solve in my business? Interesting you ask that. Again, you know, in my research, it really is best, I think, to apply design thinking processes where you have, we'll call them situations that can be, I don't want to go as far as calling them wicked problems because that, that is a, a name for something very, very large. But where you have a, where you have a sense that you have a problems, bottlenecks, where you don't know root causes, you don't already have a process to deal with a thing or a process that you're dealing with something is repeatedly not working and where you need to apply a lot of questioning yeah. rather than it's one thing, for instance, to be able to say, oh, well, we're going to do this and we're going we're to take out X, Y, and Z steps. Some of that kind of stuff is very cut and dried, but the design thinking process where you do need that curiosity 
where you do need that willingness to not know what the problem really is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's really tricky part because right. I, I remember many years back, one of my team's members was actually doing design thinking and that was uh, tough for this person to speak with management to find good projects because many times management already knew the answer, what they wanted to implement in the process. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, yeah, could you do this design thinking project? And by the way, we would like this IT platform to look like this and like that. And it's like, oh, but is that what we need to do at the end? It's like, that's already the solution. Then we do not need to do any there kind of design thinking activities. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You've, you've summed it up. I realize I can be rather verbose, so I, you'll pardon me when I start to elaborate that way. But the point being that, yes, if you have cut and dried solutions that you're absolutely going to work, then it may be redundant or not worth it. Exactly. However, I think it's very interesting. On the other side of design thinking is this idea that we're never done, right? That there is always room for, number one, that the lifespan of things that we do has a definite end. There's a point where that won't work anymore for a variety of reasons. And so you can sort of expand also into what's come out of design thinking, this idea of working on multiple horizons of time for how long the things that you're doing now will currently have viable life. So now we get into the whole innovation cycle, you know, is it yeah. desirable? Is it feasible? Is it viable? Which is a slightly different aspect of looking at design thinking, but applying design thinking into innovation. Wow, that's really good, especially that um, many times when we improve a certain area, then as you, as you just mentioned, this process is not going to look the same in three, four years from now. And uh, customer expectations will also adapt and change with time. So we really have to have that in the mindset, yeah, this continuous improvement using the design thinking methodology and to find out how can we close the gap and be as close as possible to the customer expectations. And every time they change, let's then adapt our processes accordingly. And what would you say from the design thinking initiatives that you have seen is the average duration of such an initiative? Is it like between three, four months? Is it longer? Is it shorter? Well, I'm going to break them apart into, again, now we've gotten formalized, right? We've gotten a lot of formalized processes that work. And on top of that, you notice I stuck in the innovation piece. And there's a way of looking at, at innovation. If you break down that you want to apply and work on things that are pretty much for the immediate good, Meaning that if you're doing a, we'll call it continuous improvement kind of thing, in the innovation world, we typically will call that horizon one, right? That which is immediate, that you're making immediate constant improvements. And those types of projects, you'll typically want to try and get them uh, into play rather quickly, meaning approximately six months or so. And those will be CapEx. Do you have capital expenditure projects you're going to work on? Because now you're going into typical business world of what are we doing this quarter, <laughs> What are we doing this year? Uh, what's our yeah. strategic plan based on or what are our OKRs based on a quarterly, annual basis? And so here yeah. in the very, very corporate environments, they will say, what's my expectation? As you just asked, and you can say, we can do X, Y, and Z following these processes in approximately six months to 12 months, depending. So I've, I've seen that work. Now, when you start to get to the other areas of innovation that a healthy company will want to do, where you start to look more forward, where are we going to do, we'll call them lateral shifts or changes that we're looking at for the two-year to five-year framework. You'll have those yeah. projects and then hopefully 
if you're really smart and you really have absorbed that you want to live in that world of innovation, you'll have the stuff that can be five to 10, even 20 years out. Wow. And those projects, you know, you'll have potentially many, many of them because of the funnel exactly. of experimentation. And most of them will fail. In other words, they'll be the, they won't pass one of those three tests. But those can be really long-term, and I've seen projects that have been started by both large institutions and even um, government, uh, so on and so forth. And those can take a very long yeah. time, if they can happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They can take a very long time. Okay. And if you think back of the different initiatives you've done with design thinking, one of the generic examples you could just pick out from one of the companies, yeah, because sometimes there are certain services that a company has that is very similar to another company, for example, in HR, maybe in IT platforms, they're also quite similar, or in the finance departments, accounting, and so forth. In every company you look, no matter what they produce, if it's cars, if they're producing a service or a product, it might be similar. Do you have one example that you could use as a generic Generic example that uh, was a nice project in design thinking. I, well, yes, I can think of one which has become, and I'm again because of non-disclosure agreements and all that. But it's generic enough, I think, to show doing that kind of problem solving for a, a very, very large company, which was discovering that again through design thinking processes, they had to start to quote unquote spin up services. And by spin-up services, and you'll probably be familiar with this idea, they need to run something very quickly that rather than going outside and buying it from somewhere, they figured if we can use a different approach to creating this service very quickly with a lot of quote-unquote plug-in tools that we have or taking advantage of other services and plugging them into help, we can cobble together a service and we can make that service come together in you know between three and six months and then that service if it works then we can expand on it and see if it's something we're going to regularly offer routinely within other parts of the company who may need it as well i've seen that work to the point where it was used as um, a test case and again i'm being very careful in the sense but you know they were very proud of that instead of losing two years of time trying to find a solution and doing a quote-unquote waterfall approach that they very quickly were able to come up with a very lightweight, testable solution and use that process to put something in place so that within six months they had it up as an experiment and then by a year's time it was nicely now part of the suite of things that they could offer other areas of the company to plug in and use. Oh, very good. Does that make sense? Yeah. I realize I'm being quite obscure in some ways, but yeah. but that's the concept. Exactly. And would you say it works equally well for different business sectors? Or has there been a specific business sector that you have seen where it works uh, extremely good? Or would you say it's just as good if you do it in the finance world as well as in production? And how is your experience on that? And this is what I'm also glad you asked because I think it can work as well. It comes down to, frankly, most of the time we're concerned about offering products and services. Mm -hmm. And if you can break down those parts or those elements that way, then you can apply that across both products and services. So again, I'm being a little bit obscure, but um, there's a, a fellow named Simon Wardley who came up with an approach or a process. And I would very much still call it design thinking, even though it doesn't necessarily on paper look the same. 
but it has that same element of really sourcing the problem for the users and then looking for the opportunities and pain points and trying to address all of them. Now, again, he gets very specific into an approach to actually come up with a solution. Yeah. It comes from that. It comes from the heart of that. Yeah. If you are going to always start by looking at that person who has a need or that you know has a desire and that you wish to fulfill yeah. and constantly plugging back in and testing, because that's the other piece I didn't talk about, if you will commit yourself to this iterative process... I think it can be applied in just about every yeah. field of endeavor. Because at the end of the day, I think it's all processes that are generating a specific outcome or a specific output. And at the end, it doesn't matter if the output is a service. Maybe somebody got his meal served at the table or maybe it's a car that got produced or it's a telephone that was just created. At the end, it's all a sequence of process steps that are being created through the design thinking and optimize so that the customer can receive the best outcome, whatever the outcome is. Yeah, if it's a phone, if it's a car, if it's a meal. Yeah, so that's been also my feeling that it's really well applied in almost any kind of business. And that's what it makes it so beautiful, this concept. Yeah. yeah. And if I am a CEO, where should I place this into the organizational chart? Because maybe I, I do not have yet design thinking and I'm thinking, yeah, I could train a couple of people. We could start doing the pilot phase and then I, I pull out the organization chart and, and then I start looking at my different teams that I have. And then I see, oh, okay, I have here somewhere a project management team, somewhere else I have an innovation team. I also have someone who's doing efficiency. There's somebody who's doing Lean Six Sigma. So where would I now decide to place design thinking? What have you seen in the past? Design thinking needs to start with the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a book on that, yeah. not that I wrote. <laughs> There's this great, it really, it's a wonderful book called Are We There Yet? by Sam Bucolo. Okay. He's uh, from Australia, and he was involved with management, from government level, management theory, and so on and so forth. And his investigations and his processes led him to realize that when it starts with the quote-unquote with the top, with the C-suite itself, the entire C-suite, that has a, he calls it being design-led. Yeah. There's an Australian company called Rode, which produces basically audio equipment. And the intention was the founder of the company, he was recording his kid doing something on video with a camera and the sound was absolutely awful. And he started to look for something to fix it, and he couldn't kind of find anything. And then he came up with this idea of producing what we now call it the prosumer, right? The professional slash consumer product. Started an amazing line that is internationally renowned of basically microphones yeah. to get professional or good enough, you know, professional quality at a price point that made sense for uh, an average consumer. Amazing. Right. Now, was he a titled design thinker? No. He was just applying the processes. And the fact is also the whole company, right, fell down under that way of thinking because that was the mission of the company, right? Yeah. That within the company's mission, it was to produce that kind of thing. And I'll go back to working for Apple. When you think of really what happened with Steve Jobs and his mission for the company, the way I heard it, again, we're talking about all the way back, <laughs> he really wanted to put the power of the personal computer in the hand of everybody. He wanted to break the hold of computational power, which was in the hands of you know anybody who had these giant mainframes. 
And he said, if we can make these devices cheap enough, easy enough to use, simple enough, and if you look at now, look at the whole mandate of the entire world of, of Apple computer products, starting from the first, you know, kit, yeah, all the way to the devices we hold in our hands, which he revolutionized because of that thinking. So you see, it has to start from the top and then in then work its way through the entire company. And once the CEO has realized that, they say, okay, we're going to start with it at the top, at our C-level. What would be the first logical step for them? Should they, at the C-level, first take a course on design thinking? I think it's a very good idea. Again, if they're coming from even, I'll say, traditional background, if they've worked up the ranks in management and so on and so forth, but they haven't necessarily been exposed to these concepts, then it absolutely is is amazingly useful for them to be exposed in a, again, how much time do they have? I think if they realize what it can mean, this was a massive turnaround, for instance, that happened at, at IBM. IBM was dying on the vine, and they realized that they had to inculcate a design thinking approach into who they are and what they are. I'll be honest, my understanding, it was kind of a bloodbath for a lot of the older consultants, you know, who could not adapt or may have been also uh, that the CEO did not feel like they would be able to adapt into that kind of thinking. But the shift in IBM is a major case for it, starting with the CEO who may not necessarily have come out of Stanford and been exposed to the D school and all that, but had enough of the understanding of the conceptual framework yeah. of what it is to put that way of thinking and using these processes, and then it comes down. Okay, so, wow. So there's a company that I can point yeah. out that publicly everybody knows IBM has shifted. Yeah. And what are the typical mistakes you have seen when companies use design thinking at the beginning? Is there any pattern of failures that you have seen so far? Yeah, the biggest mistake is because design thinking invites so much ambiguity that to try and put typical risk-averse principles into play. For instance, expecting certain types of results or not affording the leeway for failure, what we call failure <laughs> in business. Yeah. In other words, if you do not earmark that you are making a investment that is the equivalent of research, right? Yeah. if you don't earmark the dollars, the time, and the talent, it will become quote-unquote innovation theater and it will actually set you back because it leaves a bad taste in the mouths of management and so on and so forth Yeah. because you're not committing to a process that you can't turn a ship that fast. I mean, yeah. <laughs> big enterprise, they're gigantic. Yeah, that's right. And anytime after that, when they want to start with a new initiative, it's going to be double as hard because the people and management, anybody who was involved in the previous one, they're like, oh, no, not again one of these. And then you that's do right. have to do a lot of convincing, a lot of getting people on board. So that's why it's probably best to invest a little bit more time to do it right at the beginning than just trying to do a, a quick win and then maybe do a couple of failures in a way. Once we have introduced the first initiatives with design thinking in the organization, how do we ensure that the results are sustainable and long-lasting? It's very important that you put the process in place to also include, we'll call it appropriate types of measurements. And so there are two things I want to say. If all you're measuring is certain types of output against what you've put in, that's not exactly what you're trying to do, right? So it is a way of thinking, and within the design thinking world, we talk about the hypothesis. We believe that X, Y, and Z will produce so on and so forth. 
and then here comes the test. And we will know that when we see, when we measure, so on and so forth. So it's very important to understand what are you measuring. So I think the measurement piece is always very hard. And also, the other piece is, and this goes into being risk-averse, how quickly can you test your riskiest assumptions, all right? What are your riskiest assumptions? Oh, we know these people. We know people are going to love this. How? Did you do any research? (laughs) And this is the funny thing. It's like on the front end, they get so excited about, as you said way before, oh, we know how we're going to do this. We're going to do this process, so on and so forth. But you're working off assumptions, (laughs) Have you tested any, all of them? Yeah, and that's, I think, one of those pitfalls that many do over and over again because they just think that they know what the customer is expecting from them because they say, hey, we are the experts. We are the one producing this service or this product. But in reality, the customer is the one who should have the uh, luxury of saying, this is exactly what I'm expecting, not what you guys think that I should receive from your service or from your product. I would say it's really like a eye-opening moment when I usually tell management, let's allow to hear this from your customers. And they're like, what? Are we going to ask our customers? Yeah. What are we supposed to ask them? I say, exactly that question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Here's the thing I do with when I explain about designing personas and say, So do you have the right people in the room? (laughs) You're designing a toy or so on and so forth, and that's great. Kids love it. Kids love it. Yeah. Did you show it to mom? (laughs) She has to buy it. The kid's not going to buy it. Yeah, correct. Does mom want that? (laughs) Yeah. So who really are you serving? (laughs) Correct, because at the end, mom is the boss. She's the one pulling out the credit card. And if mom thinks that that toy looks way too dangerous, then she's just not going to buy it. that right so there's one example of that or the other thing where you're saying oh i'm buying it for a certain type of customer but the customer is going to gift it on to somebody who's never going to use it yeah true (laughs) right so you see (laughs) i think that that's the other thing it's like what are these assumptions we have to really look at at our assumptions to kind of get rid of them right away so true and one of the things that i usually encountered in the past is tough questions that come from the chief financial officer because these guys or girls, they're usually very number oriented and uh, they always want to know, well, if we're going to be investing this amount of money for the resources who are going to go through the training of design thinking, we're going to spend so much time doing the workshops. What what is actually the return and investment out of it? How can I calculate the return? I'll be honest, it is a very, very hard call because it requires a couple of things. I'll go back to the quarterlies. It is easier to do when you do key performance indicators. If you look at your key performance indicators and think a little bit more in the line of your OKRs, right, of objectives and key results, in the sense that those, and that is a formula, and it was the formula that came out of Intel, it transformed Google, because that kind of approach is, it's more humane, right? And it is more applicable towards working in a design thinking environment, Mm -hmm. because it does allow for adaptation, change, so on and so forth, while still holding rigor, which is, of course, what the chief financial risk aversion and rigor (laughs) are the two things that CFOs CFOs are going to talk about. And you say, well, then let's look at taking an OKR approach, if nothing else, even just internally for our quote-unquote innovative group, Mm. right? (laughs) They're going to be the guinea pigs, but we're not going to stick them to our traditional KPIs, key performance indicators, that don't look at this process as requiring the flexibility for adaptation and change. 
Does that make sense? I'm kind of quoting books, but also having worked in those environments where I've run into how do we live in the world? And, you know, and as I've said to you way early on when we were first talking, I'm currently now in a position where I work in a very highly regulated industry in the United States. I'm innovation facilitator for U.S. Bank, and I'm very happy to say that I'm watching the whole banking industry shift, and I never thought I would be in banking, per se, shift because innovation and design thinking have made the world take apart a lot of these old institutions and institutional thinking to say it's a brand new world and uh, we need new approaches so yeah that's a help exactly and that's why i think it's not always easy to give those answers to the chief financial officer initially before we actually started with the kickoff of this initiative because it is something that you cannot always monetize so easily at the beginning and you have maybe not enough data to say, if we do this, then that's going to happen. Through our experimentation, we will see what effect that has on the outcomes and how the customer will react to those new services that we're providing. And then we can start doing the calculations and say, okay, through that, now we're collecting our data, we're looking at our key performance indicators. Now we can give you a prediction how that's going to look in the future. But right at the beginning, I think that's really the tough part to know, I'm going to train that many people, that's going to cost me this amount of money, and what's going to be the return? And that's where it gets really tricky. Right. It's very hard. You know, there was this massive, in the 80s in particular, there was this whole thing about buying up companies and becoming, you know, monster companies and so on and so forth. That nearly killed Lego (laughs) in terms of, you know, spreading across by 2000. (laughs) Lego was having troubles, and this is, again, documented, well-known by sort of spreading themselves all over the place and we'll do you know all these different kinds of things and so on and so forth. However, what I have seen is that with the rise of startups, little, little startups, God bless anybody who has the courage to take on really the risky unknown with a quote-unquote great idea that hopefully they have actually done their research <laughs> yeah. to say, yeah, this is, it's not just me wanting to be rich and famous, but they really have seen there is a need or a desire for this. But I'll get to the point quickly. Large companies have, as they've Google and Apple and Facebook being probably best known, these FANG companies, the ones that are considered most innovative, one of the things that they have also done a lot of is in the protective way of not doing that massive investment from scratch is that they have really taken on a lot of watching startups and seeing, is this something that we would be able to immediately plug in and take advantage of? So that is another approach that can help the CFO say, well, if we buy it, instead of trying to start to get all the squeaky wheels moving. So there is that mixed approach that a lot of, well, those companies certainly, Facebook, Amazon, Google, Apple. Well, that's pretty interesting. So there are the two approaches. You can wheel up from the bottom and you can also buy the things in place. Exactly. And then that starts to affect the whole culture of the larger organization. And if I'm a manager responsible for a specific area in the business, in the company, and I want to test the waters with design thinking to run a pilot, what would you recommend is my first step? What should be my first approach? I think the first approach is to take a look at your existing business, and you can use tools like the Business Model Canvas. Mm -hmm. So in other words, breakdown or Simon Wardley's approach, uh, Wardley mapping. So you can take a look at what your business is. I always say to people, it's great to think out of sight of the box, but first got to know what the box is. (laughs) That's another one of my sayings. 
you know, take a look at the business itself with a cold calculated view. And in both of those approaches, they are design thinking approaches because they do say, what are the value propositions? What is it we are offering that people actually want and can use? And then starting from there, starting to say, can we figure out if we can get them to want more of it? Or can we figure out that they actually want something slightly different, that we can get ahead of the game? Blue ocean thinking? Correct. That kind of thing. So I think it does start from looking within at what you've got going on and then trying to fathom what can we do more for the client. Yeah, perfect. If we have a company that has branches in different parts of the world and they would like to do design thinking, would this be possible to do it with uh, digital tools? Because so far what I have seen, it's really good when you do design thinking with people in the room and you can start uh, doing those workshops with things that you can touch and feel like post-it notes and you see people in real. But if they are across the world in different uh, continents, is there a way to still be able to do design thinking? I would say that engaging someone who is really adept at these processes, and they may or may not call themselves a design thinking facilitator, but someone who can facilitate working these processes, number one, and number two, that has a really good handle on using online visual tools. This is where, once again, I haven't even talked about the visual thinking approaches, but who can use visual tools, whether they be mural or, or they're even now spatial, for instance, if you want to work inside a metaverse environment where you get people to do that hands-on work, although you've transferred into a digital community environment where you can get collaborative work going. Okay. And then use a variety. There are many templates and processes from design sprints to business model canvas and those others, which get people to collaboratively work together. Well, that's pretty interesting. And one thing that I'm quite curious about, because there are a lot of companies using different types of methodologies. For example, some are using the lean methodologies, others using Six mm-hmm. Sigma. And then they start listening about, oh, there's this uh, thing called design thinking. How would you say, are they complementary to each other? Is it so that maybe a specific area needs to stop doing lean and Six Sigma so that they can do design thinking? Or do you think that one could actually uh, use them together? How has your experience been on that? I have found that it's easier for lean shops slash agile to move into quote-unquote design thinking processes. It is a little harder with Six Sigma, and I'll, I'll be kind of blunt in the way. Roger Martin, again, I'm dropping names, but, you know, it's like it's not me. I didn't come up with this stuff, you know, but this has been researched. But let's put it this way. Many of these processes, the older ones, came out of analyzing, looking backwards, and trying to essentially eliminate waste. And that's good for continuous improvement stuff, absolutely. Design thinking wants to bring you into a forward thinking space, which is why it's aligned with innovation. Uh-huh. And that means you're dealing with ambiguity. Yeah. So the only way to cure ambiguity is by doing these small experiments by iterative process and measuring, as I say, measuring as hard as you would in Six Sigma, right? Mm-hmm. And being ruthless. Can we throw this away? Do we need to pivot And that's the hard part, too. It's like you start to fall in love with your new project. (laughs) Exactly. It looks so good on the screen. Yeah, but we can't afford to do this. It just costs us too much to produce. So, (laughs) yeah, the client loves it and it looks great and all of that, but we can't afford to do this, right? So we have to pivot. So as I say, yes, those older processes can be adapted to move into design thinking, but it's, again, if you want to consider the design thinking, both will be about always what's good for that end user and also will be what's going to move us yeah. forward as opposed to just looking back 
and fixing old stuff. Yeah. But how do we break forward into the innovative? I think I've even read an article about the company Sony that they have been always perfecting their products over and over again. And they're always doing a lot of quality and efficiency initiatives to, for example, optimize the cassette player or optimize their Blu-ray player later on. But they were not looking too much this forward thinking where they would no. start innovating new products. So anytime somebody else came out with a new product in the market, then Sony was like, oh my gosh, there's a new product and we're still optimizing the old product that we have. Now let's create that new product and start optimizing that one. But they were always a couple steps behind because they never were looking ahead because they were too busy always trying to continuously improve the things they already had. Correct. And that's why I say this three horizon world is the way that you have to live. And across that third horizon is the great unknown, but can provide the greatest reward, you know, because that will be what will take the company into its next version, which will last another, with luck, five to 10 years (laughs) these days. Correct. Right. Companies don't last doing the same thing for 50 years anymore. Yeah. If one looks in the history, evolution was so that each product life cycle was much, much longer than the ones that we see today. And if you buy a phone today in six months, if you're lucky, it's still maybe not outdated. But a year later, your phone is already an old product. I think every year or every three, four, five years, it speeds up that process where the life cycle of products just get shorter. The life cycle of products do get smaller. But I think there's also, by the same token, there are still basic core needs. It's one thing to add more bells and whistles, and this was the famous thing that happened with Microsoft Word, right? (laughs) Became just this behemoth of impossible tasks because they kept doing, quote-unquote, improvement by adding features, right? And then other things came out which were essentially doing enough to conquer the real basic need. So it's, again, always going back and figuring, are we really satisfying that immediate need? You know, for instance, the whole world of carrying a device in your hand has shifted the environment of being stuck at the desk, right? So the whole way of thinking about, (laughs) do I need it right in this moment or not? (laughs) And what do I need right in this moment or not? True, yeah. (laughs) So I'll put it to this way. Maybe we're getting towards close, but this idea that we're almost moving away from, is it a product that we need or is it a service that we need? And we're getting more and more and more. And I think the future is so defined by experience design. What's the experience that you need to think about is happening right in the moment, that particular moment for that particular person? I think there's one company that comes to mind, probably um, Disney World, that they also focus a lot on experiences and feelings. What are the products that we are producing and that we are creating? What kind of feelings does that give to our users, end users, like the children, the parents? Is it a happy feeling, joyful feeling? Certain parts of a movie from Disney World, you always have like that downfall where people are sad, but then you have again the rise where people feel again happy. So it's really on on how do I want our customers to feel through that experience? If you look at the whole history of the Disney company, it's not that it was the genius of Mickey Mouse. Mm. Again, the whole invention of Disneyland (laughs) as a concept. These are amazing things. This is the precursor of the metaverse. (laughs) Think about it. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So as I say, we're kind of coming full circle and realizing that these things have been around for a very long time, but now we have technology that can make it happen different ways. And again, like Steve Jobs says, we can really get it to be really, really personal. Yeah. I have one final question before we uh, close today's episode. The listeners might think, okay, now I would like to use something practical out of the design thinking toolbox. 
Could you give us one easy design thinking tool that our listeners could use at the end of this podcast? Yeah, the value proposition canvas. Yeah. It's a little map. It's quite simple, but it breaks out on one side that end user. I, I, I'm still using that term end user. I'm showing <laughs> my age, right? But the person you want to provide something yeah. to, the person that we wish to service or help. And it will break out their pains and their gains and their jobs to be done. And then on the other side, you start to look at what we call these value propositions. What could you produce or create? So it starts to tickle your own curiosity. Yeah. Experiment there. Perfect. I'll be putting that in the show notes for those who cannot take notes at this moment while listening to the podcast. And one final question for you is, as you're right now a full-time employee at a bank, is there any way in case some listeners have some questions that they could just contact you or how is usually the modalities here? You can reach out to me <laughs> at dean at deanmyers.net. That's my email. I obviously am careful to differentiate, you know, what I talk about from my experience and so on and so forth and to properly respect my work at the bank. But as I say, I've, I've tried to give sort of a combination of generic information and things that are out there to read and to listen to. I am still very active with organizations that are involved with design thinking approaches and so on and so forth. So, yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Dean, for your time. It was uh, very good to see your insights and your experience that you have had after so many years in the world of design thinking. And I hope that you have also another very successful upcoming chapters with the bank. <laughs> thank you so very, very much. You've been very kind to ask interesting questions, and I hope I've given you some interesting answers back. Very interesting. Thanks a lot, Dean. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dean. In the show notes, you will find all the links on where to find and contact him. As a freebie, I provided you with the tool mentioned by Dean called Value Proposition Canvas. Together with the template, I also included a short video tutorial on how to use it. As we discovered in this conversation, Lean and Six Sigma focus on optimizing existing processes, products and services, while design thinking is more inclined towards discovering what new products and services could we as a company deliver to the customer. Before you listen to anything else, I encourage you to pause for a moment, reflect on what was discussed and choose at least one action point out of this episode, for example, the value proposition canvas tool. I hope you found this episode valuable. Please rate, subscribe, send in your comments and share with those who you think could profit from this episode. It's very much appreciated and I am grateful for your messages. I am also a work in progress and strive to do things better every day. This podcast was sponsored by Wave Business Excellence Footprint, where we believe that investing in yourself and in your employees is the best investment. Therefore, if you are interested in finding out more about courses and certification programs that were designed for you as a manager to further boost your business excellence initiative, then please go to the Courses for Managers tab in the company website www.wave-bef.com where we have seven interesting courses for you as a leader. On the other hand, if you want to further develop your team members and your high performers so they can bring even more value by learning new skills and methods for solving process issues, then please select Courses for Employees tab on our website. Here you will find 15 courses designed for your employees. In case you already have team members who are certified in any Lean Six Sigma level, then we also have extra courses for them as well. 
Thank you. Stay tuned and see you in the next episode of Business Excellence for Managers.